Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in Volume 5, Chapters 31 through 40. In this program, we will typically start out with meditation just to prepare the mind for our class ahead. Then we will move into the actual teachings where a student will volunteer reading a particular chapter. I will share some teachings on that chapter and then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have related to the chapter. This program is more like a study group where students are typically studying the books prior to class and or after class and then coming to class with questions that you guys might have related to the teachings of the Buddha. I would like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining for the first time or you've been joining regularly. This volume five is titled The First Stage of Enlightenment, Stream Enter. This is where you're learning about the teachings that are needed in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. And today, being in chapters 31 through 40, we'll explore those and allow you to ask any and all questions that you like as we go through those. If you haven't read these chapters, it's okay. We're going to be displaying them on the screen as part of our class and having them read. And if you would like to read the books, you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and you'll see the link for free books. And from there, you can download the entire book series. You can also access it through Amazon if you have access to Amazon. And you can even download the file and go print it if you like. So we move through this program over the course of a year and a half moving through volumes 2 through 13 and then the foundational program which is the group learning program this is taught on Sundays and Wednesdays that covers volume 1 we go through that book chapter by chapter over a seven month period so again I'd like to welcome you guys and switch over to some visual aids in order to help me be able to share the teachings with you that we're going to be studying today we're starting with chapter 31 rather than going into our meditation because there's a number of pages to read today that would be quite extensive if we also did meditation. So there's some days where I will actually skip over meditation. But if you're learning in this program, you should have a regular meditation practice by now and skipping over meditation before class is no big deal. So we're gonna move right into studying the chapters. And if there's anyone in Zoom who would like to read these, just raise your hand and let me know. You're welcome to read any of the chapters. If nobody volunteers, I'll just go ahead and read the chapters myself. So this first chapter is chapter 31, which is titled, The Noble Method is to Understand Dependent Origination. These are the words of the Buddha. And what is the noble method that he has clearly seen and thoroughly penetrated with wisdom? Here, householder, the noble disciple attends closely and carefully to dependent origination itself 
thus. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that is eliminated. That is, with ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness. With consciousness as condition, name and form. With name and form as condition, the six sense bases. With the six sense bases as condition, contact. With contact as condition, feeling. With feeling as condition, craving. With craving as condition, clinging. With clinging as condition, existence. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the cause of this whole mass of discontentedness. But with the remainderless fading away and elimination of ignorance, unknowing of true reality, comes elimination of volitional formations, choices, decisions. With the elimination of volitional formations, elimination of consciousness. With the elimination of consciousness comes the elimination of name and form. With the elimination of name and form comes elimination of the six sense spaces. With the elimination of the six sense spaces comes elimination of contact. With elimination of contact comes elimination of feeling. With the elimination of feeling comes elimination of craving. With the elimination of craving comes the elimination of clinging. With the elimination of clinging comes elimination of existence. With the elimination of existence comes elimination of birth. With the elimination of birth comes elimination of aging and death. Sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair is eliminated. Such is the elimination of this whole mass of discontentedness. This is the noble method that he is clearly seen and thoroughly penetrated with wisdom. Okay, so back in chapter 5 of this book, the Buddha describes that in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enter, a practitioner would need to understand the noble method. And here he's explaining to you that the noble method is dependent origination. We studied dependent origination in chapter 14, but I'd like to just kind of review that here because it takes time to gradually understand dependent origination and you might have questions that you need clarification on dependent origination now that you've maybe had a few weeks to think about it and look at it more closely. So this first part, the Buddha is just explaining dependent origination in summary form. Here, he usually introduces dependent origination in a way that helps you to see that there's this cause and effect. With dependent origination being the highest, most ultimate truth that all his teachings come back to, he likes to introduce it in a subtle way before he goes into the details rather than just jumping in to the details. So here, he's saying when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. So this is showing causality, that when there's one thing, then something else exists. When you have a job, you will have an income. When you have an income, you can save money in the bank. When you save money in the bank, you'll be able to purchase things that you need when you fall on hard times, right? This is the cause and effect, cause and effect. Well, 
all things in the world are functioning through this cause and effect. And then the same thing, when this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that is eliminated, right? When you don't have a job, you don't have an income. When you don't have an income, you can't save money in the bank. When you can't save money in the bank, you'll feel stressed when you have certain sudden situations occur that require an outlay of a certain amount of money, right? So when you don't have something, then this is not going to exist and that's going to be eliminated. So he's helping you to see this cause and effect because dependent origination in its detail is showing the cause and effect, starting with the first condition of ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. You learn about this in the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. This is that unknowing of true reality. The unenlightened mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. The unenlightened mind doesn't understand things like the Four Noble Truths, that the mind is causing its own anger and sadness and frustration and other discontent feelings due to craving desire attachment and because of this unknowing of true reality the craving continues to exist and that means anger is going to arise and the mind is unknowing of things like the eightfold path in the five precepts and all these other teachings that the buddha shares and because of that unknowing of true reality or that lack of wisdom there are then volitional formations or choices and decisions that come about that are informed through this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. So unwise decisions are being made in the unenlightened mind that then lead to unwholesome results. Some of those unwholesome results is that when there's volitional formations made through ignorance, then the mind continues to have craving, which then leads to a new consciousness. So the Buddha is describing to you how a being comes to be and how a being starts to experience discontentedness. So now when there's this consciousness, then a being picks up name and form, which is the physical body. So this consciousness finds a physical body by entering into the womb of a woman. And now there's a physical body and a consciousness together. Then inside the womb, there's the development of the six sense bases, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind itself. And now the mind is starting to experience this contact through the six sense bases. And when there's contact through the six sense bases, there then becomes feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. These are conditioned feelings. It's conditioned on this contact with an impermanent object. Then when this feeling arises due to having the sixth sense bases, having contact with an impermanent object, and then there's feeling either pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant, the mind having experienced those pleasant feelings starts to crave those pleasant feelings. And now the mind starts to cling to those. So there's this mental longing and strong eagerness with the craving the mind chasing after the objects of its affection, and then it's holding on. This is the clinging. It's holding on and wanting these pleasant feelings to be permanent. Because of this, the being then comes into existence. There is then birth, and whenever there's birth, there's going to be aging and death. This is the impermanent nature of the physical body, that if there's birth, 
there's going to be aging and death because of the impermanence that this physical body is not permanent. So that's why every single one of us age and die because of impermanence. We can't escape that unless we practice the Eightfold Path and then we can escape the whole cycle. But as long as we're in existence, we're going to continue to have this aging and death. And with that, throughout the course of your life, you will experience in the unenlightened state sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. And all of this is happening that then accumulates all this massive amount of discontentedness due to the ignorance. It's the ignorance that allows the cravings to continue to exist. And as long as there's craving, there's going to be sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. That's the anger. Because of ignorance, craving and anger continues to exist. And the Buddha is showing you the step-by-step process of how a being comes to be in the world and how one comes to experience this discontentedness. And your goal on this path to enlightenment is to unravel this and eliminate the ignorance so that if you can eliminate the ignorance, then you can eliminate the discontentedness and you can eliminate the continuous birth, aging, and death. But in order to do that, you need to eliminate the craving and the clinging. That's how you actually eliminate the discontent mind. But in order to eliminate that, you have to eliminate the ignorance, which is you apply wisdom. So by learning the teachings of the Buddha, practicing them to independently verify them, you can actually then experience the elimination of ignorance, which will lead to the liberation of mind, the peace and the joy will come into the mind. So that's this next part that the Buddha is explaining that with the remainderless fading away in elimination of ignorance comes the elimination of these volitional formations that are unwise. Because when you put wisdom in replace of ignorance, now the decisions that you make as an enlightened being are going to be informed by wisdom not by the unknowing of true reality. So when you have wisdom, your mind is going to be liberated from this whole complete cycle. You're eliminating the unwise decisions, so you eliminate the conditions that are causing the consciousness to continue to exist. You're eliminating the consciousness, you eliminate the taking up of this physical body, which is called name and form. By eliminating the name and form, you're eliminating the creation of the six sense bases. By not having the six sense bases, you're not going to experience contact. By eliminating contact, there won't be any conditioned feelings. That's how the mind then eliminates craving. Craving is eliminated, the mind is no longer going to cling. Because there's no more clinging to existence, there's not going to be existence. Now, because there's no existence, there won't be birth. And when there's no birth, then you've eliminated aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, and displeasure, and you've eliminated the entire massive amount of discontentedness because you're now outside of the cycle of rebirth. So here, this is showing you the step-by-step elimination because when ignorance does not exist, volitional formations will not come to be in terms of unwise volitional formations. This is also helping you here to see why when the discontent feelings arise in the mind. The Buddha teaches in the Eightfold Path that when you observe with right mindfulness the bodily sensations of discontentedness starting to arise, that you cut that off and let it go. You eliminate the arising bodily sensations by 
cutting off and letting go of the bodily sensations. When you eliminate the conditioned feelings arising by observing those bodily sensations and you restrain the mind, it cuts off and eliminates the cravings. This is how you get to liberation, that the Buddha is describing this in the Eightfold Path, but you can see the underlying details of it here of why this is occurring. Because when the mind has eliminated the conditioned feelings, you'll eliminate the cravings. And then when there's no cravings in the mind, then it won't produce conditioned feelings. So this is where the Buddha is helping you to see all the individual steps and all the individual details through dependent origination. So I'm going to see what questions you guys have. You're welcome to raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. You can put those into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. All right, I'm not seeing any questions here in any of our platforms. So let's move on to the next chapter. The next chapter is chapter 32. This one is titled, The Little Bit of Soil in the Fingernail. Monks, what do you think? Which is more? The little bit of soil that I have taken up in my fingernail or this great earth? Venerable sir, the great earth is more. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant compared to the great earth. That little bit of soil is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too, monks, for a noble disciple, a person accomplished in view, who has made the breakthrough, the discontentedness that has been destroyed and eliminated is more, while that which remains is insignificant. Compared to the former mass of discontentedness that has been destroyed and eliminated, the later is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction, as there is a maximum of seven more lives. He is one who understands as it really is. This is discontentedness. This is the cause of discontentedness. This is the elimination of discontentedness. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Okay, so here's a common simile that the Buddha will use when he's comparing two things side by side and he's trying to show the significance of one versus the insignificance of another. Here, he's talking about the amount of earth that the entire earth has versus the little bit of soil that is under his fingernail. And he's saying the little bit of soil under his fingernail is insignificant or incalculable compared to the massive amount of discontentedness that exists in the mind prior to getting into the first stage of enlightenment. Once the mind is in the first stage of enlightenment, the discontentedness has significantly diminished versus what you were experiencing when you were off the path to enlightenment. So here he's saying the same thing, that the little bit of soil under his fingernail is representative of that small amount of discontentedness that you experience once the mind's in that first stage of enlightenment versus when you're off the path to enlightenment, you're 
discontentedness is represented by all the soil of all the earth. So here he's then saying that in order to essentially get to this, one needs to experience the breakthrough, one accomplished in view. They need to experience the breakthrough. And what that breakthrough is to be able to destroy discontentedness is to understand the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is the very first step on the Eightfold Path, which is right view. This is going to help you to establish what is the problem in the mind, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. That's what you're learning through the Four Noble Truths. Ultimately, what you're learning is craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing and strong eagerness. That's what's ultimately leading to your discontentedness. Independent origination, the Buddha is showing you all the way back to ignorance, how ignorance is the real primary cause of keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. But then he shows you through that cause and effect how it leads to craving and clinging. And that's what ultimately is then leading to the discontentedness. So he's showing all the details in dependent origination. But with the Four Noble Truths, you get this little window into understanding the unenlightened mind and what's truly causing the discontentedness, which is craving, desire, attachment. And that's what helps you to accomplish this breakthrough to ultimately get to the point where you've gotten to the first stage of enlightenment through learning a whole series of teachings. And then in that first stage of enlightenment is where you've had significantly diminished your discontentedness. So let me see if there's any questions here on this particular chapter. All right. So now we're going to move to the next chapter, which is chapter 33. The achievement of other communities cannot compare with the achievement of a noble disciple. Monks, suppose that a man would place a seigneury, the king of the mountains, seven grains of gravel the size of mung beans. What do you think, monks? Which is more? The seven grains of gravel the size of mung beans that have been placed there or Sanira, the king of the mountains. Venerable sir, Saniru, the king of the mountains, is more. The seven grains of gravel the size of mung beans are insignificant. They do not amount to a hundredth part or a thousandth part or a hundred thousandth part of Saniru, the king of the mountains. So too, monks, the achievements of aesthetics, Brahmins, and wonders of other communities do not amount to a hundredth part or a thousandth part or a hundred thousandth part of the achievement of a noble disciple, a person accomplished in view, who has made the breakthrough. So great an achievement, monks, is a person accomplished in view, so great in direct knowledge or experience. So, Keep in mind here what the Buddhist teaching is about the aesthetics, Brahmins, and wonders of other communities because he was sharing the teachings that lead to enlightenment and he knows that that's what he was sharing where other people were still teaching. They didn't necessarily know that he was a Buddha and that his teachings for sure lead to enlightenment because a Buddha doesn't have any outward characteristics that inform everybody that this person is a Buddha. And a Buddha doesn't keep performing miracles to try to convince people that they are a Buddha. They just share their teachings in order to help people get to enlightenment. And this is actually one of the strengths 
and powerful qualities of a Buddha is that they have this deep wisdom to understand their own mind in the mind of other individuals. So by people not knowing who a Buddha is, that individual is then able to better help others because he can observe the qualities of mind of his students and the people around him who's coming to potentially learn. And then by people not knowing he's a Buddha, he can observe their mind more readily because if people knew that he was a Buddha and absolutely was a Buddha, people would probably be on the very best behavior. They would be functioning in ways that would kind of mask what was really truly going on in their own mind. So by people not knowing that he was a Buddha, then he could more clearly see people's mind and then share teachings to be able to help them. So these other aesthetics, Brahmins and wanderers of other communities would sometimes come and learn with the Buddha occasionally, but their development on the path and getting to enlightenment was very minor compared to those who were studying with the Buddha because the Buddha was sharing the true actual teachings that actually lead to enlightenment in the proved condition of mind. So here the Buddha's comparing this to seven grains of gravel the size of a mung bean. A mung bean is just a bean off of a plant and they're quite small compared to the massive size of the mountain. So the Buddha is explaining here that the improvement to the condition of the mind with one of his students who is understood is accomplished in view, meaning they deeply understand the Four Noble Truths and they've done other things to become accomplished in view, which is what we shared in last week's class. The Buddha was sharing multiple things that one would need to learn and practice in order to become accomplished in view. And once you become accomplished in view, you've had this breakthrough where you deeply are practicing the teachings, deeply understanding what's causing discontentedness, and then working on dismantling it and eliminating it. So here the Buddha is helping his students see that they're making progress. And one of the things you need to keep in mind if you're learning the words of the Buddha and you are seeing significant progress to your mind is one, is understand that just because other people are saying that they're practicing the Buddhist teachings, doesn't mean they're studying the true teachings and the true words of the Buddha, and they might not be experiencing the same amount of progress that you are on this path. So it's important to maintain your loving kindness and compassion for all beings while also being humble because you'll encounter people who are either saying that they're on the path and they're Buddhist and they're learning the Buddhist teachings or people who are completely unaware of the teachings of the Buddha. And you're going to have certain wisdom that other people don't have. Your calmness and composure, your steadiness and stability of mind will eventually be way more than what you experienced in the past. And not that you should compare yourself to others because that would be conceit, but as you're interacting with others and you observe people's minds are really struggling, you need to be sure you have loving kindness and compassion as well as humbleness in the mind that you don't allow the conceit to rise up based on the wisdom that you're experiencing and based on the steadiness and calmness and composure and the peace and the joy that's in your mind that other people aren't experiencing. So that's something to keep in mind as you study a particular chapter like this. So let me see if you guys have any questions here. You're welcome to ask those through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So we'll move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 34. Here, this one is titled, a noble one with developed sense bases. 
and how Ananda is one a noble one with developed sense bases. Here, Ananda, when a monk sees a form with the eye, hears a sound with the ear, smells an odor with the nose, tastes a flavor with the tongue, touches a physical object with the body, recognizes a mental object with the mind, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. If he should aspire, may I reside perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive, he resides perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. If he should aspire, may I reside perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive, he resides perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive. If he should aspire, may I reside perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive and the unrepulsive. He resides perceiving the unrepulsive in that. If he should aspire, may I reside perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive in the repulsive. He resides perceiving the repulsive in that. If he should aspire, may I avoid both the repulsive and unrepulsive, reside in equanimity, mindful and clearly aware. He resides in equanimity towards that, mindful and fully aware. Ananda, that is how one is a noble one with developed sense bases. Okay, let me help you understand what the Buddha is describing here. Before even talking about what he's describing here, it's important that you have the background information of understanding the six sense bases in craving. What the mind is doing, as you see in dependent origination and all the Buddha's other teachings, is the mind is longing and yearning through the sense bases, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind. It has certain cravings. It wants to have agreeable contact through the eyes. It wants to always permanently see agreeable things. And when it sees agreeable things, then it experiences those conditioned pleasant feelings. But now when it comes in contact with disagreeable things or disagreeable forms through the eyes, now the mind experiences painful feelings. And then the same thing is occurring due to craving through all the other sense bases. So if you hear agreeable music, for example, someone pulls up next to you in a car and you hear agreeable music, you might get pleasant feelings like happy, excited, or elated. But now when somebody pulls up with disagreeable music that you find disagreeable, you're having that contact through the ears with disagreeable music. And due to your craving, you find this music to be disagreeable. Now you might get frustrated or irritated or annoyed because of that. And this is causing the mind to go up and down and up and down throughout your life and throughout your day that as you're experiencing agreeable and disagreeable contact, the mind is going to go up and down and it's experiencing this contact through the sense bases. Well, here the Buddha is explaining the same thing, but he's using the words of unrepulsive and repulsive rather than agreeable and disagreeable. In other places, he uses the words agreeable and disagreeable. So the unrepulsive would be agreeable contact. The repulsive would be disagreeable contact. So if you're experiencing contact through the sense bases and you find it to be unrepulsive, then you're seeing it as agreeable. 
or if you find it to be repulsive, then you're seeing it as disagreeable. So this first sentence, what the Buddha is describing is that, may I reside perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. So when you experience something that is disagreeable or repulsive, he's saying that train your mind to see it as unrepulsive or see it as agreeable, right? And this is one of the first things that you're doing that rather than continuing to allow the craving to persist in the mind and keep seeing things as disagreeable and repulsive, when your mind starts to observe something and right away you're having this disagreeable contact, say with music, instead of thinking of it that way and thinking of it as repulsive, start perceiving it as agreeable or unrepulsive, okay? And this will help you to move the mind away from your cravings. Then the next thing he says is, okay, when I see something as unrepulsive, meaning it's agreeable to you, now may I start perceiving it as repulsive. He's helping you to move the mind closer to the middle. That if you perceive something as agreeable to you, He's saying, start to see it as disagreeable. Start to see that that agreeable thing that you're coming in contact with is disagreeable. The reason why is because as long as your mind continues to long with craving, desire, attachment through the sense bases and wanting agreeable contact, you can only be happy when you get that agreeable contact. So you need to start moving the mind away from that. And what he's ultimately going to get you to here in this teaching is where you don't see things as repulsive or unrepulsive, that you don't see something as agreeable or disagreeable, that instead, when you're having contact through the sense bases, it's just contact. It's not repulsive or unrepulsive. It's not agreeable or disagreeable. It's just contact. So when that person pulls up next to you in the car with certain music that if you had a craving, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's my jam. That's my music. Instead, it's just like, hmm, there's some contact. There's some music. Okay. There's some music or there's some sound coming into the ears. And I don't see that as agreeable or disagreeable. It's just music. And now when somebody comes up next to you with music that you would have previously seen as disagreeable or repulsive, now when someone pulls up in a car with that type of music, rather than seeing it as disagreeable or repulsive, instead it's like, hmm, there's some sound. Interesting. And you know that these things are impermanent, that all this sound coming into the ears is impermanent. So there's no need for you to make a judgment of whether it's agreeable or disagreeable, but instead you just see it as contact. And that's what he's helping you to do here when he's describing to see the repulsive or the disagreeable as unrepulsive or agreeable. And when you see and experience the unrepulsive or the agreeable, see it to be repulsive or disagreeable. Because as long as your mind keeps latching onto it and seeing it as agreeable, you're going to keep chasing after those pleasant feelings. And now he's getting you deeper into this. And he says, may I reside perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive and the unrepulsive, right? So now you're not either agreeing with the repulsive or the unrepulsive. So you're not seeing agreeable contact as being either agreeable or disagreeable. It's just contact. That's what he's ultimately getting you to here. 
that you're not seeing disagreeable contact as disagreeable or agreeable. It's just contact. That's all it is. So now, ultimately, what he gets you to here is by doing this, what you'll ultimately get to is that you won't see things as repulsive or unrepulsive. You won't see things as disagreeable or agreeable. Instead, you can just reside with equanimity. Equanimity is calmness and composure, evenness of temper. You can have mindfulness and awareness of mind, or you can have full awareness of the mind. That's what the Buddha is ultimately guiding you to get to by not seeing things as agreeable or disagreeable. It's just contact. And now you can reside with equanimity, that calmness and composure. You do this through eliminating the cravings so that as you see the discontentedness arising as a bodily sensation, you cut that off and let it go. But if you can get ahead of that, where this person pulls up next to you with music, don't see it as agreeable or disagreeable. It's just contact through the ears. Or if you smell some certain odor, instead of thinking of it as agreeable or disagreeable odor, it's just an odor and it's impermanent. When you taste something on the tongue, a certain flavor, rather than see it as agreeable or disagreeable, it's just contact and it's impermanent. So you just chew it and swallow it if that's what you need to do. Or you just drink this certain drink. All you're doing is nourishing the physical body. You're not trying to please the mind through the tongue. You're just trying to nourish the physical body. And it's not possible for everything to be permanently tasting in a pleasant manner. So you're sometimes going to taste things that are to your liking. And there's other times that it's not going to necessarily be what you prefer. So you would like to train your mind that it's just contact. It's just food going into the body to nourish the body rather than making a judgment of whether it's good or bad or agreeable or disagreeable, maybe spit it out and get irritated and annoyed. Instead, just train the mind that you can chew this food, you can swallow it and everything will be just fine. That not every single meal that you eat is gonna taste miraculous. Okay, so what questions do you guys have on this? <clears throat> you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So we'll just go ahead and move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 35. You can see here that I've explained a lot in these chapters that it's important for you to go read each of these chapters so that you see the words of the Buddha and then the guidance that I'm providing you to help you. So here, chapter 35, the title is Difference in Understanding of Teachings Between a Stream Enterer and an Arahant. A stream enterer is the first stage of enlightenment. An Arahant is an enlightened being. They're in the fourth stage of enlightenment. The mind is actually enlightened at that point. In the first stage of enlightenment, you're still experiencing discontentedness, significantly less than when you were off the path, but you're still experiencing discontentedness. An arahant is experiencing no discontentedness whatsoever. It's been eliminated 100% because they fully purified their mind, eliminating all 10 fetters. So this is the first discourse of the Buddha explaining the difference between the first stage of enlightenment and an arahant, an understanding of the teachings between one stage of enlightenment and another. Monks, there are these five aggregates subject to clinging. What five? the form aggregate subject to clinging, 
the feeling aggregate subject to clinging, the perception aggregate subject to clinging, the volitional formations or choices decisions aggregate subject to clinging, the consciousness aggregate subject to clinging. When monks, a noble disciple understands as they really are the cause and the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these five aggregates subject to clinging. Monks, then he is called a noble disciple, one who is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destination, with enlightenment as his destination. When monks, having understood as they really are, the cause, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these five aggregates subject to clinging, a monk is liberated by non-clinging. Then he is called a monk who is an arahant, one whose taints are destroyed, who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached his own goal, completely destroyed the fetters of existence, one completely liberated through final knowledge or wisdom. So let me help you understand what the Buddha is describing here. The first thing is to understand what the five aggregates are. The five aggregates were taught at other times during this program, but I'll just kind of review them for you guys because you may not have been around when those were being taught. These five aggregates or five collections or five elements these are the five elements that help you to understand what a living being is. A living being is going to have all five aggregates. So you have these five aggregates, just like a dog or a bat or a rat or a snake or a tiger. Any living being is going to have these five aggregates. There's the form aggregate, which is physical form. There's the feelings aggregate, which is that conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. There's the perception aggregate, which are your views and opinions of how you view the world around you. Then there's the volitional formations aggregate or collection or element, which is the choices and decisions. You make certain choices and decisions. Then there's the consciousness aggregate, which is the mind itself. Consciousness is just another name for the mind. So you can learn this, which is what I just shared with you, and now you can independently reflect and you can see that you indeed have all five aggregates. And so does any other living being that you have around, that you can look, you can investigate this through learning and reflecting. And then when you practice, what the Buddha is teaching you here is to not cling to these five aggregates. He's explaining to you that you have these five aggregates. And in the Four Noble Truths, he explains that if you cling to these aggregates, that you're going to experience discontent feelings. So if you cling to the form aggregate, which is your physical form, and you get a pimple or a mole or a wrinkle or a gray hair or something like this, uh, you're going to experience discontentedness. Or if you stump your toe, for example, if you cling to this physical form, wanting it to be permanent, then when you experience impermanent with the physical body, when you experience impermanence with the physical body, now you're going to experience discontentedness. So if you're craving this physical body to always be youthful, when you see a wrinkle, when you see a gray hair, when you start losing your hair, or any of these changes that can occur in the body, even like an injury, like hitting your toe on the edge of a leg of a couch or a table, you're going to experience discontentedness. But if you understand that this physical body is impermanent and it's not going to be permanently youthful, it's not going to look 
a certain way permanently and you're not going to have permanent comfort in the body it's impossible for you to have that then without clinging to this body you will experience more peace and more joy and the same thing with the feelings when you notice conditioned feelings arising in the mind you shouldn't cling to these you need to learn to spot them as bodily sensations and cut them off and let them go and then your perceptions, your views and opinions. If you've ever been in an argument with someone over your views and opinions and you're kind of you know, fighting and advocating and debating almost until death because of your views and opinions, and then you got really angry and frustrated afterwards or during the conversation, that's because you're clinging to your perceptions. If you cling to the perception that other people are causing you to be angry, then you're not going to ever be able to get to liberation. You need to be able to let go of certain views and opinions that are false views and false opinions. But the way that you do that is through cultivating wisdom. So no longer clinging to your views and opinions about the world, but instead getting to the point where you have wisdom, that you're no longer believing things, because with belief, you don't know what's true or false. But if you can learn, you can reflect, independently verify and practice, then you know the truth and you won't cling to your views, your opinions and your beliefs. Instead, you will know the truth. You're no longer clinging to these things. And you shouldn't be in a situation where you're arguing or debating about your views, opinions, and beliefs, because that's not going to lead to liberation because you're there having divisive speech and argumentative speech and harsh speech. So by letting go of your perceptions, no longer clinging to them, then you can reside more peaceful and joyful. Same thing with your choices and decisions or your volitional formations. If you make a decision today about something that's going to occur three months from now, or three weeks from now, or three days from now, or three hours from now, or three minutes from now. If you cling to a decision, and now you want that decision to happen exactly the way you wanted it, three minutes from now, three hours from now, three weeks from now, three months from now, what have you, then as impermanence is happening, your decision isn't going to be able to remain permanent. You're gonna to need to not cling to your decisions. You're going to need to be flexible in your decisions because as impermanence is happening, it's not possible for you to make a decision now that is going to stay true all the way through. Even sometimes you make a decision now and three minutes later, something changes and you're going to need to change your decision or three hours or three weeks or three months. You're going to need to be flexible to let go and not cling to a decision. If you're clinging to your choices and decisions, you won't account for impermanence. And therefore, by you clinging to this permanent decision, wanting it to be permanent, now you're going to make an unwise decision and you're going to experience discontentedness. And then the same thing with the mind. There's a certain identity in the mind. Like I am Canadian or I am American or I am a police officer or I am a Buddhist teacher. Any of this I am, I am, I am. I am a mom. I am a grandmother. I am a grandfather. I'm a dad. I'm a boyfriend. I'm a girlfriend. I am a husband. I am a wife. Well, when impermanence happens, if you're clinging to the consciousness, if you're clinging to the mind, when impermanence is happening, you're going to feel lost when your kids leave or when your grandkids leave or when you're no longer a husband or a wife or when you're no longer a police officer or whatever job that you have or if somebody says something degrading about your nationality or your ethnicity or your sexual orientation or any of these things if you cling to the consciousness the identity in the mind 
you're going to experience discontentedness. So what the Buddha is saying here is that as a, as a noble disciple, as a stream enterer, then one would understand this, right? So you understand what I just shared. And you might need to study that some more in the books by getting personal guidance, by asking questions. You need to understand what it is that I just shared. So that is what would take, among other things, to get to this first stage of enlightenment. You're going to need to understand the cause of these five aggregates, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape of these five aggregates. And then that's going to then help you to get to stream entry, among other things, to get to that first stage of enlightenment, you're going to need to understand the five aggregates and to not cling to them. But then in order to get to enlightenment, you will have needed to understood, meaning that you've done the work to ensure that you're not clinging to these things, that you are fully practicing and you understand and you have understood through practice that what is the cause, the disappearance, gratification, danger, and the escape in relationship to these five aggregates. So here I have the cause, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape. The cause of these five aggregates coming to be is craving, desire, attachment. Dependent origination that we studied just a little bit ago, and we studied it in other times in our class for this particular volume, Dependent origination shows you how craving leads to the continuous rebirth, that when there's ignorance, that leads to volitional formations, to consciousness, to the taking up of a physical body or name and form, which leads to the six sense bases, which then leads to contact, feelings, craving, clinging, existence, birth, aging and death, and then there's sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. So it's right at the core of dependent origination and the Four Noble Truths is that the cause of this that's continuing on is the craving, desire, attachment. And you learn that through eliminating ignorance. By getting to wisdom, you can then understand that the true cause is the craving, desire, attachment. And then the disappearance of these five aggregates and that they're going to no longer exist, that you're going to no longer exist as a human being, is understood through the universal truth of impermanence. The gratification, that the mind wants gratification in the unenlightened state is based on the fetter taint pollution of central desire. This longing and yearning through the six sense bases, through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind itself, that the mind is longing and yearning through the sense bases. This is central desire. And then the danger of the mind wanting this gratification because of its cravings, it's wanting this gratification. The danger in all of that is that the mind can experience this discontentedness. As long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, it's going to experience the conditioned pleasant feelings, the conditioned painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. That's the true danger, because when your mind's all shaken up and unsteady, you don't like it, right? Well, the escape from all of this is the Eightfold Path. That's the way to get out of the cycle of rebirth and get out of this discontentedness, moving the mind to this enlightened mental state. The Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment. So this is the escape, and this is what you would have needed to understand in detail and be practicing it. As a stream enter in the first stage of enlightenment, you understand it 
but you haven't fully understood it because you're not yet fully practicing it. As a stream mentor, you understand these things. You have all the wisdom you need because you're at the first stage of enlightenment and you've practiced to a certain degree to get to that first stage of enlightenment. So you understand it to a certain degree, but it's not until you truly have understood it that you now have completely eradicated all the 10 fetters and now the mind is enlightened. That's what the Buddha is describing up here when he says that a monk is liberated by non-clinging, by not clinging to the five aggregates, then you are going to experience the enlightened mental state because you've now destroyed the fetters that you no longer are experiencing the 10 fetters. And the mind is now liberated through final knowledge, meaning you've acquired all the wisdom that you need, fully understood the entire path, not just intellectually, not just reflecting on it to independently verify it, but you're practicing it effortlessly. It's like first nature by the time you get to enlightenment, that the mind has been completely liberated because you now have final knowledge or wisdom has been fully cultivated about the path and you fully implemented it. There's no more fetters in the mind whatsoever. It's completely purified. You've eliminated all the pollutions. So let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. I will continue on with our class moving into chapter 36. Here the title is Difference in Understanding of Teachings Between a Stream Enterer and an Arahant, Second Discourse. Monks, there are these six sense bases. What six? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. When monks, a noble disciple understands as they really are, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these six sense bases, then he is called a noble disciple who is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the nether world, fixed in destination, with enlightenment as his destination. Monks, there are these six sense bases. What six? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. When monks, having understood as they really are, the gratification, the danger, and the escape, in the case of these six sense bases, a monk is liberated by non-clinging. Then he is called a monk who is an arahant, one whose taints are destroyed, who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached his own goal, completely destroyed the fetters of existence, one completely liberated through final knowledge or wisdom. So here the Buddha is describing that the difference between a stream enter, the first stage of enlightenment, and an arahant, the fourth stage when someone's actually enlightened, is that as a stream enter, you understand the six sense bases. You understand what they are, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, and that the mind is longing and yearning through these. So you understand the gratification, the danger, and the escape. Those are the things that we just talked about. The same gratification, danger, and escape. But as an arahant, an enlightened being, you have understood it meaning there's no more clinging, there's no more longing and yearning through these sense spaces, that you've eliminated the fetter of sensual desire among all the other fetters that you've eliminated as well. So that's what he's describing here. Let me see if you guys have any questions on this particular chapter.
Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here, so we'll move on to the next one, which is chapter 37. This is titled, One Who Cultivates Fully Reaches Fulfillment. One Who Cultivates in Parts Succeeds in Part. Monks, every half month, more than 150 training guidelines come up for recitation. Clansmen who aspire for their own good train in these. These are all comprised within these three trainings. What three? The training in the higher virtuous behavior, moral conduct. The training in the higher mind, mental discipline. And the training in the higher wisdom. These are the three trainings in which all this is comprised. Here, monks, a monk fulfills virtuous behavior, concentration, and wisdom. He falls into wrongdoing in regard to the lesser and minor training guidelines and rehabilitates himself. For what reason? Because I have not said that he is incapable of this, but in regard to those training guidelines that are fundamental to the spiritual life, in practice of the spiritual life, his behavior is constant and steadfast. Having undertaken the training guidance, he trains in them. With the destruction of the taints, he realizes for himself, with direct knowledge, experience, in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he resides in it. If he does not attain and penetrate this, with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is an attainer of nibbana or enlightenment, between one life and the next. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is an attainer of nibbana or enlightenment upon landing. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is an attainer of nibbana or enlightenment without extra effort. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is an attainer of nibbana enlightenment with extra effort. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is one bound upstream, heading toward the heavenly realm. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of the three fetters and with the diminishing of craving, anger, and ignorance, unknowing of true reality, he is a once-returner who, after coming back to this world only one more time, makes an end of discontentedness. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of the three fetters, he is a one-seed attainer who, after being reborn once more in human existence, he makes an end of discontentedness. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of three fetters, he is a family-to-family -family attainer who, after roaming and wandering on among wholesome families two or three times, makes an end of discontentedness. If he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of three fetters, he is a seven times at most attainer who, after roaming and wandering on among heavenly beings and humans seven times at most, makes an end of discontentedness. Thus, monks, one who cultivates fully reaches fulfillment. One who cultivates in part 
succeeds in parts. This training guidance, I say, is not unfruitful. Okay, so let me help you to understand what the Buddha is doing here. He's helping you to understand developing the mind fully, reaching to fulfillment, meaning reaching to enlightenment. And then one who cultivates in parts succeeds in parts. So if you fully cultivate the mind in this life, meaning you fully eliminate all 10 fetters, you will get to enlightenment. But if you do it part by part, one life to the next, to the next, to the next, he's showing you the different stages of enlightenment and the different sub-stages within each individual stage of enlightenment. So this first part, he's explaining how every month there's twice in that month that his students would come together and they would chant or they would recite his training guidance. This is how he helped the students to remember his teachings because it was an oral tradition that they would then come together every two weeks in order to chant his teachings word for word for word. And this is the way they committed them to memory. And then they were able to reflect on those teachings and practice them to be able to experience the results. The training that he taught was the Eightfold Path, which is the wisdom section, moral conduct, and the mental discipline. Well, here, the Buddha is describing that as the training in the higher virtuous behavior, which he usually focuses people on first. After you establish right view through the Four Noble Truths, you usually start focusing on right speech, right action, and right livelihood first. And the five precepts helps you to fully flush that out and understand fully what is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Then there's the training in the higher mind, the mental discipline. That's right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And the training in the higher wisdom. This is things like dependent origination and all the things that we're talking about in this particular volume. These are the three trainings in which all this is comprised. Okay, So now he says, here, monks, a monk fulfills virtuous behavior, meaning they fully are practicing the moral conduct. They're fully practicing concentration, which is the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path and the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path, which is right view and right intention. So here, if someone's fully practicing the virtuous behavior, concentration, and wisdom, now say they fall into wrongdoing, meaning they make a mistake in their moral conduct or some something that they're doing, they maybe trip up and regarding the lesser and minor training guidelines. So there's the teachings of the Eightfold Path, which is a certain level, but then there's a deeper teaching. So something like right speech, for example. In the Eightfold Path, the Buddha teaches that one should abandon lying, should abandon slander, should abandon the harsh speech and the frivolous speech. So if you fulfill virtuous behavior, you're practicing those four things. But then on the deeper teachings, there's things like the five factors of well-spoken speech, where you're learning to speak at the right time, what you say is true, you speak gentle, you speak beneficial, and with a mind of loving kindness. So this is a deeper teaching, right? So you might be practicing the initial right speech of not lying, not slandering, not having harsh speech, and not having frivolous speech. But maybe you're speaking at the wrong time, right? Maybe you're interrupting people. This would be a 
lesser and minor training guideline. In order to get to enlightenment, you're still going to need to eliminate that. You're still going to need to be practicing speaking at the right time. But perhaps you're fulfilling the virtuous behavior of right speech from the Eightfold Path, but this lesser teaching, even though it's a deeper teaching that's ultimately going to be needed to get to enlightenment, it's not as significant in terms of chucking off those big problematic things regarding to speech. So the Buddha is saying, if you have a certain amount of moral conduct, mental discipline, and wisdom, then when you have a wrongdoing or you make a mistake, that you're going to be able to observe that and rehabilitate yourself. You're going to be able to observe like, ah, I wasn't speaking at the right time there. I should get better at that. Okay, let me get better at that for future conversations that I have. That's what he means by rehabilitate yourself, is to be able to observe the mistake and then understand how to correct it and then go forward and improving that in your other conversations, for example, with right speech. So the Buddha is saying that he has not said that one would be incapable of this, meaning you would be capable of doing this if you were in the first stage of enlightenment. Because in the first stage of enlightenment, you have all the teachings that you need in order to get to enlightenment, but you're not fully practicing them yet. So when you spot things that are opposite of what an enlightened being would be practicing, you would know that as a stream enter, and then you would rehabilitate yourself. You would aim to do better. You would observe that you had a wrongdoing. You would observe that you made a mistake, and now you would aim to do better, and you would then gradually and consistently work to improve as you're making your way closer and closer to enlightenment. And then the Buddha goes through all the different stages and substages of enlightenment. So here the first one is with the destruction of the taints, he realizes for himself with direct knowledge in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he resides in it. This is enlightenment. So once somebody completely destroys the taints or the fetters, they've eliminated all 10 fetters, their mind is liberated. It's no longer experiencing strong feelings. You're no longer having anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, even the slightest displeasure is eliminated from the enlightened mind. It's the taintless liberation that you've liberated the mind by wisdom, that you're not believing the teachings you've learned, reflected to independently verify and you practice. And now having entered upon enlightenment, you will continue to reside in it for the rest of this life. It's a permanent mental state that you will experience for the rest of this life. And then he goes through the subsequent stages of enlightenment, describing a non-returner. Here, when he's describing a non-returner, there's different types of non-returners. The non-returner is the third stage of enlightenment, and this is a being who's eliminated the first five fetters. And now when they die, they're going to be reborn in the heavenly realm and they can get to enlightenment there. So here, the first one the Buddha is describing is one who's eliminated the first five fetters, but then they get to enlightenment between this life and their next life. So between one life and the next, they get to enlightenment in that life. And then this one, he's saying upon landing, meaning once you are reborn in that heavenly realm, you get to enlightenment right there at that moment. Then he's talking about once you're reborn in the heavenly realm, without real struggle or this real extra effort, 
then you can get to enlightenment. By doing a little bit of work in the heavenly realm, you can get to enlightenment there. And then the fourth one he's talking about here where an individual has been reborn into the heavenly realm through eliminating the five fetters in this life. And now with extra effort in the heavenly realm, they get to enlightenment there. And then there's one more here as well in this third stage of enlightenment is that if he does not attain and penetrate this with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is one bound upstream heading towards the heavenly realm, right? You're heading towards that heavenly realm, right? You're not having been reborn yet. You're moving in that direction. Perhaps in this life, once you get to the third stage of enlightenment, you'll do the rest of the work to actually get to the fourth stage and actually get to enlightenment. And then he talks about the others here. I don't know that I need to necessarily go through all of these for you guys. They're pretty self-explanatory, but if you guys have questions on any of these, I can surely help you. I'll just generally mention that a once returner is one who eliminates the first three fetters and then they've thinned out number four and five, which is central desire and ill will. And this once returner is going to, if they die in that stage of enlightenment, is going to be reborn back into the human realm and get to enlightenment in that next existence. And then he describes the different types of stream enters here, which is something that we studied previous, which is a one seed attainer, a family to family attainer, and a seven times at most attainer. We've studied this in this same book in previous discourses. So let me see if, if you guys have any questions related to this particular chapter. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's move to the next one. Again, there's a lot here that I've written that would be wise for you guys to study because I go through it in a lot more detail in the actual book. So here, chapter 38, the Buddha is teaching the seven kinds of persons found existing in the world, similar to those in water. What he's going to do here is he's going to use an analogy to help you understand the types of ways that you can kind of get bound up and that you can have difficulties on the path to enlightenment. And he's equating it to somebody who's in the water because he talks about stream entry as one who's entered the stream. And then once you've entered the stream, this log is going to eventually get to the ocean. The ocean is enlightenment. So the idea is, is that as you train your mind and you get closer and closer to that first stage of enlightenment, once you get to the first stage of enlightenment, you've got a lot of wisdom that you've cultivated, but there's still more work to do. And you're not interested in getting hung up. You're interested in getting to the ocean. You're not interested in that law getting hung up. You would like to get to the ocean because that's enlightened mental state. So here he's going to explain to you the various obstacles and challenges. And there's others as well. But here he's giving you one particular understanding of that. Monks, there are these seven kinds of persons found existing in the world similar to those in water. What seven? Here, some person has gone under once and remains under. Some person has risen up and then goes under. Some person has risen up and stays there. Some person has risen up, sees clearly, and looks around. Some person has risen up and is crossing over. Some person has risen up and gained a firm foothold. Some person has risen up, crossed over, and gone beyond, a Brahmin who stands on high ground.
And what, monks, is a person, one who has gone under once and remains under? Here, some person possesses exclusively black, unwholesome qualities. In this way, a person is one who has gone under once and remains under. So here he's describing if somebody has lots of darkness, lots of unwholesome qualities, that they're just essentially going to go under the water and remain under, and they're not going to essentially come back up for breath. They're just going to go under, meaning going under into the lower realms of existence, in hell, the animal realm, in the afflicted spirits. They're going to move from this human realm down into the lower realms, and they're of these unwholesome qualities, right? And they're going to remain under. Two, and how is a person one who has risen up and then goes under? Here, some person has risen up thinking, good is confidence in cultivating wholesome qualities. Good is a sense of moral wrongdoing in cultivating wholesome qualities. Good is moral concern in cultivating wholesome qualities. Good is energy in cultivating wholesome qualities. Good is wisdom in cultivating wholesome qualities. However, his confidence does not become stable or grow, but rather diminishes. His sense of moral wrongdoing, moral concern, energy, wholesome qualities, and wisdom does not become stable or grow, but rather diminishes. In this way, a person goes under, is one who has risen up and then goes under. So this would be an individual who maybe starts to study the teachings of the Buddha, maybe for six months or a year, starts to understand them to a certain degree, maybe even two or three years, starts to understand them to a certain degree, starts to feel like, yes, good are these wholesome qualities. Good is having a sense of moral wrongdoing. This is a wholesome quality. Good is having moral concern. Good is having energy to cultivate these wholesome qualities. And yes, good is this wisdom to cultivate these wholesome qualities. But their confidence in the teachings does not become stable or grow, but rather it diminishes. So maybe somebody has this craving and desire to learn and start learning and they they go for six months or a year, two years or three years. They're starting to look like they're going to practice these teachings and maybe get to enlightenment, but then their confidence never fully becomes stable and grows and it diminishes. Their sense of wrongdoing, this moral wrongdoing, moral concern, and their energy and wholesome qualities and wisdom does also not become stable and grow, but rather it diminishes. In this way, the person, they're rising up, but then they go under, right? They go under the water. They go under into the lower realms of existence, hell, animal, and afflicted spirits. Number three, and how is a person one who has risen up and stays put? Here, some person has risen up thinking, good is confidence in cultivating wholesome qualities. Good is a sense of moral wrongdoing in cultivating wholesome qualities. Good is moral concern in cultivating wholesome qualities. Good is energy in cultivating wholesome qualities. Good is wisdom in cultivating wholesome qualities. His confidence neither diminishes nor grows. It just stays put. His sense of moral wrongdoing, his moral concern, his energy, and his wisdom neither diminishes nor grows. It just stays put. In this way, a person is one who has risen up and just stays put. So this is somebody who puts in an initial amount of effort to kind of learn some of the teachings. 
and then they just kind of become complacent and they just kind of stay put. They just kind of flatten out. They don't continue to grow. They don't cultivate their mind. They only cultivate it to a, a very minor degree, understanding certain aspects, but then they just stay put. They just kind of peter along in that particular condition of mind. They're not really growing from there and beyond. Now, number four, and how is a person, one who has risen up, sees clearly and looks around? Here, some person has risen up thinking, good is confidence, good is a sense of moral wrongdoing, good is moral concern, good is energy, good is wisdom and cultivating wholesome qualities. With the destruction of three fetters, this person is a stream enter, no longer subject to rebirth in the lower world, fixed in destination, heading for enlightenment. It is in this way that a person is one who has risen up, sees clearly, and looks around. So this is describing an individual who has actually made their way to that first stage of enlightenment, learning all the different things that need to be learned. And the Buddha is saying this is one who has risen up, has clearly seen the teachings because they've gotten to that first stage of enlightenment, significantly diminished their discontentedness, and has all the teachings that they need to make the rest of their way to enlightenment. So they've looked around, right? They've risen up, clearly sees, and they look around. Now, number five. And how is a person, one who has risen up and is crossing over? Here, some person has risen up thinking, good is confidence. Good is a sense of moral wrongdoing. Good is moral concern. Good is energy. Good is wisdom and cultivating wholesome qualities. With the complete destruction of the three fetters and with diminishing of craving anger and ignorance, unknowing of true reality, this person is a once returner who after coming back to this world one more time will make an end of discontentedness. It is in this way that a person is one who has risen up and is crossing over. So this is the second stage of enlightenment, that they've eliminated the first three fetters and they've thinned out number four and five sensual desire and ill will. That's the diminishing of craving anger and ignorance. They haven't eliminated it. They've just diminished it. So this is a person who's rising up and starting to cross over. They're starting to make their way closer to enlightenment. Six, and how is a person, one who has risen up and gained a firm foothold? Here, some person has risen up thinking good is confidence. Good is a sense of moral wrongdoing. Good is moral concern. Good is energy. Good is wisdom in cultivating wholesome qualities. With the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, he is of spontaneous birth in the heavenly realm. Due to attain final nibbana or final enlightenment there without returning from that world, it is in this way that a person is one who has risen up and gained a firm foothold. So here he's describing a non-returner, the third stage of enlightenment, that they've eliminated the five lower fetters, and then they're going to be reborn in the heavenly realm, and they're going to attain enlightenment there. And all of this is based on these initial qualities of confidence, of moral wrongdoing, of moral concern, of energy, and wisdom. Now the last one, number seven. And how is a person, one who has risen up, crossed over, and gone beyond, 
a Brahmin who stands on high ground. Here, some person has risen up, thinking, good is confidence, good is a sense of moral wrongdoing, good is moral concern, good is energy, good is wisdom and cultivating wholesome qualities. With the destruction of the taints, he has realized for himself with the direct knowledge or experience in this very life, the taintless liberation of mind, liberation by wisdom, and having entered upon it, he resides in it. It is in this way that a person is one who has risen up, crossed over, and gone beyond, a Brahmin who stands on high ground. These monks are the seven kinds of persons found existing in the world, similar to those in water. So here he's describing a being who gets to enlightenment, completely eliminated all the ten fetters. So this is a very detailed description for you of showing you the various stages that one might go through as they make their way to enlightenment. And the Buddha makes it very clear and very concise for you. Any questions on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's go to the next chapter, which is chapter 39. This one is titled, Nine Persons Passing Away with a Residual Remaining Are Freed from Hell. On one occasion, the perfectly enlightened one was dwelling at Savati, at Jedi's Grove, in this park. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Then in the morning, the venerable Saraputta, dressed, took his bowl and robe and entered for alms food. It then occurred to him, it is still too early to walk for alms food in Saravati. Let me go to the park of the wanderers of other communities. Then the venerable Saraputta went to the park of wanderers of other communities. He exchanged greetings with those wanderers and, when they had concluded their greetings and cordial talk, sat down to one side. Now, on that occasion, those wanderers had assembled and were sitting together when this conversation arose among them. Friends, anyone who passes away with a residual remaining is not freed from hell, the animal realm, or the realm of afflicted spirits. He is not freed from the plane of misery, the bad destination, the lower world. Then the venerable Saraputta neither excited in nor rejected the statement of those wanderers, but rose from his seat and left, thinking, I shall find out what the perfectly enlightened one has to say about this statement. Then, when the venerable Saraputta had walked for alms food in Savati, after his meal, on returning from his alms food round, he approached the perfectly enlightened one, paid homage or respect to him, and sat down to one side. He here reports verbatim the entire course of events ends. I rose from my seat and left, thinking, I shall find out what the perfectly enlightened one has to say about this statement. Who, Saraputta, are those unwise and unskillful wanderers of other communities, and who are those that no one with a residue remaining as one with residual remaining, and one with residual remaining as one without residual remaining. These nine persons, Saraputta, passing away with a residual remaining, are freed from hell, the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits, 
freed from the plane of misery, the bad destination, the lower world. So let me explain what's happening so far before I go on. So Sariputta, being one of the closest students to the Buddha, was going to go out for food and walking through the street and as people donated food, he would have something to eat. He realized this one particular place where he normally goes, it was too early to go there. So he ends up going to this other place where there's other students from other communities, people who aren't learning with the Buddha. And as he goes to this other place and he greets these other people, they start sharing with him that anyone who dies with their residual remaining is not freed from hell, the animal realm, or afflicted spirits, the bad destinations, the lower realms. What it means to die with the residual remaining, what it means is that you've entered into this first or second or third stage of enlightenment. And now if you have residual remaining, it means that you've done a certain amount of work to get to the first, second, and third stage of enlightenment, but you still have a little bit of residual pollution in the mind. You still have some of the taints there. They're not fully eliminated like an otter hunt. So a stream enterer, a once returner, and a non-returner would have residual remaining. And what these people are saying is they're not free from the hell realm, the animal realm, or the realm of afflicted spirits. But what the Buddha teaches, which you guys should know by now, is that by the time you get to the first stage of enlightenment, you're free of hell, you're free of animal realm, you're free of afflicted spirits, because you've reached that first stage of enlightenment where your mind has been cultivated to become a better and better human. You're functioning as a better and better human by the time you get to the first stage of enlightenment. So if you die in that stage of enlightenment, as either a first, second, or third stage of enlightenment, you're going to come back either to the human realm or to the heavenly realm. You're not going to go to the lower realms. One of the big things of getting to the first stage of enlightenment is that you're free of the lower realms. So you wouldn't be reborn in hell, animal, or afflicted spirits realm if you have a residual remaining the way that the Buddha describes it. But here, these students from other communities are saying, no, you're going to still be reborn in hell, animal, or afflicted spirits. So Sariputta, not really knowing 100%, wisely goes and seeks out his teacher to ask the question of, hey, what's happening here? Is this actually a true statement? And the Buddha says, who are those unwise and unskillful wanderers of other communities? How would they even know? He's saying, who are those that know one with a residual remaining? He's saying, how would they even know whether an individual still has certain pollutions in their mind? How would they even know that that's the case? He says, how would they know that? And one without residual remaining as one without. So how would they even know if somebody was either enlightened or they were in one of the stages of enlightenment? How would they even know that? Because oftentimes an individual who's on the path to enlightenment isn't able to figure out somebody else's mind. A Buddha can figure that out. A Buddha can understand somebody else's mind and what stage of enlightenment they're in. But another individual wouldn't be able to even figure that out. And the Buddha is saying they wouldn't even be able to figure out who's enlightened and who's not and who still has a residual remaining. So he says, these nine persons, Sariputta, passing away with the residual remaining, are freed from hell, the animal realm, and the realm of afflicted spirits. So he's going to now explain to Sariputta that there are people who have a residual remaining 
and they are free from hell. They are free from animal realm. They're free from the realm of afflicted spirits, which is exactly opposite of what these other students from other communities were actually saying. So now the Buddha is going to share the true teachings of somebody who still has residual remaining is freed from the lower realms. He says, what nine? Here, Saraputta, some person fulfills virtuous behavior or moral conduct and concentration or mental discipline, but cultivates wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, this person is an attainer of nibbana or enlightenment between one life and the next. This is the first person passing away with the residual remaining who is freed from hell, the animal realm, and the realm of afflicted spirits, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destination, the lower world. So this person who's eliminated the five lower fetters, but still has a residual remaining, they still have the five higher fetters. The Buddha is saying this being is going to be reborn in heaven. They're not going back down to the lower worlds, the lower realms. So these other wonders are saying, no, you still have residual remaining. You still need to be reborn in the lower world, in the lower realms. And the Buddha is showing you here like, no, that's not the case. And then here's the next one. Again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior or moral conduct and concentration, mental discipline, but cultivates wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, this person is an attainer of Nibbana upon landing. So this person is the second person who's passing away with residual remaining that is going to be freed from the lower realms. Again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior and concentration, but cultivates wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, this person is an attainer of Nibbana without extra effort. Again, a third person with residual remaining who's freed from the lower realms. Again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior and concentration, but cultivates wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, this person is an attainer of Nibbana with extra effort. This is the fourth person that has residual remaining who's freed from the lower realms. Again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior in concentration, but cultivates wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, this person is one bound upstream, heading towards the heavenly realm. Again, this is the fifth person passing away with the residual remaining who's freed from the lower realms. Again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior and cultivates concentration and wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the three fetters and with the diminishing of craving anger and ignorance, unknowing of true reality, this person is a once returner who, after coming back to this world only one more time, makes an end of discontentedness. So here, this is the sixth person who still has a residual remaining, but is freed from the lower realms. Again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior, but cultivates concentration and wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the three fetters, this person is a one-seed attainer who, after being reborn once more as a human being, makes an end of discontentedness. This is a stream enterer that is going to come back one more time and get to enlightenment in that next birth. This is the seventh person passing away with the residual remaining 
who's freed from the lower realms. Again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior, but cultivates concentration and wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the three fetters, this person is a family-to-family attainer, who after roaming and wandering among wholesome families two or three times, makes an end of discontentedness. This is the eighth person passing away with the residual remaining, who is freed from the lower realms. Again, some person fulfills virtuous behavior, but cultivates concentration and wisdom only to a moderate extent. With the complete destruction of the three fetters, this person is a seven times at most attainer, who, after roaming and wandering on among heavenly beings and humans, seven times at most, makes an end of discontentedness. This is the ninth person passing away with a residual remaining, who is freed from hell, the animal realm, the realm of afflicted spirits, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destination, the lower world. Who, Saraputta, are those unwise and unskilled wanderers of other communities, and who are those that know one with a residual remaining as one with the residual remaining, and one without a residual remaining as one without a residual remaining. These nine persons passing away with a residual remaining are freed from hell, the animal realm, the realm of afflicted spirits, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destination, the lower world. Saraputta, I have not been disposed to give this teaching exposition to the male and female ordained practitioners, male household practitioners and female household practitioners. For what reason? I was concerned that on hearing this teaching exposition, they might take to the ways of complacency. However, I have spoken this teaching exposition for the purpose of answering your question. So here, the Buddha is making it very clear that you can escape those lower realms by this particular work, even though there's residual remaining, one is has escaped those lower realms. Remember, the ultimate goal is to get to enlightenment, eliminate the 10 fetters, and completely experience enlightenment where there's no more discontentedness. But if one falls short of that, the Buddha is helping you to see that there's these other options where one won't go back to the lower realms. So you would like to put in the work to get to enlightenment in this life so that you don't need to experience rebirth. But if you do, then at least you're freed from the lower realms if you get to that first stage of enlightenment or beyond. Any questions here on this particular discourse? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's go on to the last chapter for today's class, which is chapter 40. Here it's titled, A Stream Enter Knowing and Seeing in These Ways. Good monks, so you say thus, and I also say thus. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that is eliminated. So here, this is dependent origination. Okay, we've just studied this in this class, so I'm not sure that I need to read all of that. And let's come down here where after dependent origination, the Buddha shares this. One, monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you run back to the past thus? Were we in the past? Were we not in the past? What were we in the past? How were we in the past? 
Having been what? What did we become in the past? No, venerable sir. So what he's doing here is he's saying, having clearly seen and knowing dependent origination, would you look to your past and wish that you were back in the past? The students reply, no, understanding dependent origination, I'm not interested in going back to the past because the past is continuous rebirth and being reborn over and over and over again and continue to experience discontentedness. So no, not interested in going back to the past. So now the second one, knowing and seeing in this way, would you run forward to the future thus? Shall we be in the future? Shall we not be in the future? What shall we be in the future? How shall we be in the future? Having been what? What shall we become in the future? And they say, no, we're not interested in that. No, venerable sir, right? Because the goal is to come into the present moment. Longing and yearning for the past, longing and yearning for the future, it doesn't allow the mind to be in the present moment. So understanding dependent origination, the students are saying, no, we're not interested in the past. We're not interested in the future. The mind needs to be here in the present moment. Three, knowing and seeing in this way, would you now be inwardly confused about the present thus am i am i not what am i who am i where has this being come from where will it go no venerable sir so if you understand dependent origination you're not going to need to understand what am i because you're going to understand this universal truth of non-self that there is no i or who am I? Or where has this being come from? Because dependent origination is explaining to you how you come about. That because of ignorance, that there's volitional formations. Then there's going to be consciousness, name and form, which is the physical body. The six sense spaces start to form in the womb. Now you experience this contact. Now you have feelings. Then there's craving. There's clinging. There's existence. There's this birth aging, death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair, the whole massive amount of discontentedness. So if you understand dependent origination, you're not going to be confused about where have I come from and where will I go? Because you're going to know that if you haven't dismantled ignorance, if you haven't dismantled the dependent origination, you're going to know that if you die, you're going to be reborn. You can see that very clearly through dependent origination, and you will know where you've come from as well. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you speak thus? Our teacher is respected by us. We speak like this out of respect for our teacher. And the answer is, no, venerable sir. They're not going to say that. Because if you understand dependent origination, you're not just going to regurgitate it and just recite it just because your teacher explained it to you and out of respect to your teacher you're going to say this but instead if you've deeply penetrated dependent origination then you know it to be true with wisdom and you're not just repeating it out of respect for your teacher and we speak like this out of respect for our teacher we speak this teaching of dependent origination because we know it to be true with a hundred percent certainty that you'll need to get to that point where you've penetrated into it and you can see it without a shadow of a doubt that it's 100% clear, that you're not just repeating or reciting dependent origination out of respect for your teacher, 
because you know that it to be true. That's why they say no. Knowing and seeing dependent origination, we would not speak that we're just sharing this out of respect for our teacher because they know that it's true. Five, monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you speak thus? Our aesthetic says this, and so do other aesthetics. It is only because of them that we say this. No, venerable sir. So once again, you're not just repeating dependent origination because other students around you say it and say that it's true, but instead you've seen the truth for yourself. You've penetrated it with wisdom. That's why you might share dependent origination if somebody asked you about dependent origination. Six, monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you acknowledge another teacher? No, venerable sir, because if you understand dependent origination and you see that the Buddha is explaining in detail each individual step of what leads to rebirth, what leads to discontentedness, and you know it to be 100% true, then as you penetrate that and you see the truth, there's no way that you could ever acknowledge another set of teachings or teacher because somebody has helped you to be able to see the truth in detail, how each being comes to be and how you experience discontentedness. There's no way that once you penetrate it with wisdom that you would ever be able to acknowledge any other teacher or set of teachings. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you return to the observances, intense debates, and superstitious rites of various aesthetics and Brahmin, taking them as the most important aspects of the holy life? No, venerable sir. So this is what I was talking about in our previous classes where I said, once you penetrate dependent origination, you understand that the true problem that the unenlightened mind is experiencing is that ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. And there's no way that any rite, ritual, ceremony, or worship, or any kind of superstitious or auspicious ceremony is going to be able to fix your mind. That the only way to get to liberation and freedom from strong feelings to peace and joy is through acquiring wisdom, through eliminating ignorance, then you decouple and unravel all of dependent origination. So you're not going to continue to have these observances where you're having rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. You're not going to also be involved in these debates where you're arguing and fussing with other people, trying to convince them because you already know wisdom. And if those people are interested in learning the teachings, they're going to have to choose to go learn them themselves, just like you did. Nobody forced you or coerced you into learning these teachings. So intensely debating with somebody is only going to lead to people being repulsed and pushed away. So if you know wisdom, if you have the wisdom of this path, you can just walk with wisdom and a smile. You don't need to go out and argue and be argumentative with people and having these intense debates. You just know wisdom and you don't have to argue and fuss and fight with other people because you can just walk with your wisdom and a smile because you know the truth. And you're not going to have these superstitious rites of various places that you might see, that you'll understand that that's not part of the holy life. Number eight, monks, do you speak only of what you know, see, and understood for yourselves? Yes, venerable sir. So here, the Buddha is ensuring that his students are only going to speak what it is that they've investigated and learned, that they've reflected to independently verify, and that they're practicing. You only speak the truth, only what you know to be true. 
If somebody told you something, you're not going to just believe that and then repeat it. Instead, you're only going to speak the truth. And that's what the Buddha is saying, that you know it, you see it, and you understood it for yourself. And that's why you speak it. That's dependent origination, but it's also everything else in the world. You should function that way. And then you'll be reliable and dependable, one that somebody can rely on. And now the Buddha finishes it up with good monks. So you have been guided by me with this teaching, which is visible here and now, immediately effective, inviting inspection, onward leading to be experienced by the wise for themselves. For it was with reference to this that it has been said, monks, this teaching is visible, hearing now, immediately effective, inviting inspection, onward leading to be experienced by the wise for themselves. So here the Buddha is helping you to see, and he talks about it in other places too. He invites you to come inspect his teachings. Come examine these teachings. Come investigate them. Because he knows if somebody investigates his teachings closely enough, it's going to lead them to enlightenment. It's going to lead them to seeing the truth. Because there's no way that you can study these teachings seriously and not actually see the truth and actually experience improvement to the condition of the mind. You need to investigate through learning. You need to reflect and start to independently verify and practice. That's what's going to train the mind. And now as you're training the mind, having investigated and inspected the teachings, you're going to see the truth. And the Buddha says to be experienced by the wise for themselves. So as you become wiser and wiser, you're going to eliminate that ignorance and then it's going to decouple all of dependent origination. And ultimately, at the end of dependent origination, he explains it. That's how ignorance causes discontentedness. So wisdom is what's going to eliminate discontentedness. Liberation of mind by wisdom. You're cultivating wisdom to eliminate discontentedness, to liberate the mind from these strong feelings. So let me see if you guys have any questions. You haven't had any questions the entire class. So let me see if there's any more or any that you guys have had. I don't see any questions. So it looks like you guys must be understanding. So I will end class by sharing with you that next week we'll be moving into the next 10 chapters in the book. You can feel free to read those. Uh, we're going to be moving on from chapter 40. We're now going to go to 41 and all the way through to the end of this book, which is chapter 53. So next week, we probably aren't going to be meditating either because there's a lot more chapters to be able to study. So if you guys would like to study these chapters before class, you can be studying chapters 41 through 53. And remember, you can get the book if you don't already have it by going to buddhadailywisdom.com, downloading it, printing it, or getting a printed copy from Amazon. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be in chapter 22 of volume one. This chapter is titled Mental Health, A Modern Day Delusion. Here I'm going to help you understand how a lot of information in the world is trying to convince people that they're mentally ill and that they have a defective brain. But what you can see through the teachings of the Buddha is that these symptoms of stress, anxiety, mental anguish, 
all the discontent feelings that are experienced can actually be eliminated through the teachings of the Buddha. That if you're just relying on a diagnosis that you're mentally ill and you're thinking that you're mentally ill with ADHD or ADD or bipolar or some of these other things that are labeled as mental illness, you're just going to stay relegated to that particular diagnosis. But you can escape all of that. You can escape that discontentedness by understanding true reality, getting to the point where you can clearly see what's causing these discontent feelings so that then you can actually eliminate them. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So I'd like to thank all of you for joining for class, and we'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.